Thanks for listening to The Gist. If you want to check out an ad-free version and bonus content, go to subscribe.mikepesca.com. It is the best way to directly support our endeavors. It's Monday, April 30th, 2023 from Peachfish Productions. It's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Cleveland, Texas, 50 miles or so north of Houston. Francisco Oropesa is shooting off his rifle again, an AR-15 in his front yard. It's not illegal for Oropesa to own or use the rifle, but the neighbors just want a break. It's nearing midnight, and they have small children who need to sleep. Hey, neighbor Wilson Garcia asks, do you think he'd give it a rest just for the evening? Instead, Oropesa walked into his home, then walked back out, over to the Garcias, and executed Mrs. Garcia, her eight-year-old child, and three others. Oropesa is still at large. Just another example of America's hair-trigger tensions spilling over into actual victimhood, when the trigger in question is a literal one, setting off a firearm, ending, or ruining lives. This on the heels of the shooting of a teen in Kansas City, a 20-year-old in the wrong driveway in New York, a 6-year-old in North Carolina, a cheerleader who got in the wrong car in a Texas parking lot. Something is happening. Something deadly, awful, and different. Only, it's not. Oh, it's deadly and awful. It's just not different. We have a cluster of high-profile gun crimes, but there's scarcely a week that goes by in which you couldn't find four or five shootings where the victims were innocents, the shooters were hotheads, and the beefs were meaningless. I understand the inclination to ask, how could this happen? And to say, this is unbelievable. But no, it's not, neighbors told KHOU, Houston's CBS affiliate. They're always shooting. They're always calling the cops. I have two babies. They got scared. But we're like, well, it's normal. They're always shooting. As a different neighbor said, this wasn't unique. It was inevitable. I guess that's what happens. Uh, there's a lot of people here that like to shoot guns. And I, it was just a, a matter of time before something like this happened, I guess. He's speaking for a neighborhood, Cleveland, Texas, but he could be speaking for America, which isn't to exaggerate the threat of gun violence to you and your family. The threat's way too high, but it's concentrated. And if you're lucky enough not to live in one of the few census tracts where gun violence takes place extremely often. A 2015 study identified neighborhoods that contain just 1.5% of the country's population, but saw 26% of America's total gun homicides. On my Substack, Pesca Profundities, I delve more into the stats. I provide charts that is appropriate to the page. But here, I will just emphasize that this is not normal, but it is the norm, the literal meaning of normal. We have so much gun crime, you can tell any story to indicate any new trend. And it is a trend. It's just not new. It's not that we've suddenly gotten less civil or reasonable or neighborly. It's that we remain so heavily armed. On the show today, the most dismissive Sunday show guest you will ever hear. But first, we are joined by the host of The Witch Trials of J.K. Rowling, Megan Phelps Roper, who gives us insights into the creation of her podcast, the connection to Megan's past as a former Westboro Baptist church member, and the power, if any, of convincing people through Twitter. Megan Phelps Roper, up next.
I absolutely knew that if I spoke out, many people who had loved my books would be deeply unhappy with me. I knew that. Time will tell whether I've got this wrong. I can only say that I've thought about it deeply and hard and long, and I've listened, I promise, to the other side. And I believe absolutely that there is something dangerous about this movement, and it must be challenged. The Witch Trials of J.K. Rowling is an excellent podcast from the Free Press. It is hosted by Megan Phelps Roper, and it is really the first in-depth analysis of the most famous, powerful, influential writer of fiction alive today and her interactions with one issue that she couldn't just stay away from, as she tells Megan Phelps Roper. The issue is, of course, trans rights. J.K. Rowling is not quiet about it. It has upended her life to a degree that I think we did not realize until maybe we heard all seven episodes of this excellent podcast. Megan, welcome to The Gist. Thank you so much for having me, Mike. So, Megan, I know that you were in the Westboro Baptist Church and you wrote a memoir and had many pieces of journalism written about you leaving that church, the religious extremist organization, and you left in 2012. But the Harry Potter books were out before then. What was your relationship with those books, the existence of those books when you were younger? My family were, I mean, huge fans. My dad came home from work one day, I think I was maybe like 12, 11 or 12, um, and insisted, you know, his boss uh, had, he, you know, works in this, you know, very professional um, environment and his boss had given him the book and the first book and he loved it and he insisted that I would love it. Um, and I started reading and, you know, all of the books became, you know, passed around my siblings and I, I have 10 siblings and we were huge fans. Like I would take I would take copies of those books um, to the picket line and, you know, kind of balance. Obviously, as they got bigger, um, uh, I would take them and balance them on top of my sign uh, and read because I I didn't want to stop reading. And these were pickets for military funerals, pickets against gay people. What were you picketing as you were reading those books? Uh, in in general, it was it was like the local protests in Topeka, Kansas. So we the protest targets were you know invariably LGBT people, um, but also Christians, um, you know other other Christians um, who we believed were not following the word of God. Um, those were two primary targets that we we because we protested every single day in my hometown from the time I was five years old. So my uh, I guess cursory understanding of what the Christian right per se, thought about those books was that they thought they were ungodly and they thought that they embraced witchcraft, which clearly they did, though <laughs> witchcraft is fictional in the worlds of those books, and therefore the Christian right would be against it. But the Westboro Baptist Church were for it, but also against some parts of the Christian right. Is there a coherent theology that explains that? Um, yeah, so I mean, when it comes to the book specifically, you know, we just saw that these are fiction books, you know, we believed witchcraft was wrong, but it's a fiction book, you know, so it's, it's, we didn't take it nearly as seriously as, as other Christians did. Um, and then when it comes to, I mean, we didn't call them Christians, we would call them, you know, so-called Christians or Christians with the, you know, uh, scare quotes implied. Um, we didn't, we didn't think that they were truly Christian because they were not, you know, not following 
the word of God, the word of Jesus Christ. You probably, or the Westboro Baptist Church, thought of these other Christians as insufficiently Christian, but that also, you probably thought of them as kind of stupid. Like part of their insufficient Christianity was Mm -hmm. you said, how could they be interpreting the clearly the word of God and the scripture in such a backwards way, just as you also said, or just as the church also said, you know, how could you be reading a fictional book and thinking it's real? I, I, I don't know, from just our cursory conversation about it, it seems like those two things fit together in a way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, and my, my family, we just, I think a lot of people are surprised by Actually, I feel like this happens in, in any conversation you have with um, with religious or, or formerly religious people. Like the, the things that are allowed and disallowed in one environment versus what's allowed and disallowed in another. And you have, I think, both sides of this. You have like, wow, I can't believe you were allowed to do that. And then you also have, I can't, you know, I can't believe that was forbidden. That's that's so wild to me that you weren't allowed, you know, to, to do these things. So Right, right, right. Every time... I listen to a cult documentary, I read about cults, uh, that strikes me. I can't believe they were, I can't believe these were the rules, but that's how cults mm-hmm. work. You know, you have to have <laughs> rules and the rules enforce, reinforce the uh, the sanctity of the cult. So when it comes to J.K. Rowling, did you get interested in her as a flashpoint in the culture because you recognized what she was going through as akin to to what you went through? Uh, no, I mean, when when she first started tweeting about sex and gender, I remember looking on and being just very surprised by both the tweets, the things she was posting, and then also the reaction to it. I, I couldn't quite understand what was happening, but it wasn't until my friend Andy Mills, who, as you know, is also a you know, former fundamentalist Christian, um, who called uh, two years ago, a little over two years ago now, and, you know, with this idea for for the show, The Witch Trials of J.K. Rowling, and the fact that she had been the subject of this, you know, these two major backlashes, one from the Christian right and the other from the progressive left. And, you know, when he first mentioned that, you know, as I said, because my personal experience of the books um, was so positive, I had forgotten that, you know, there had been this Christian backlash. And so, essentially, I got off the phone and immediately started... Um, you know, researching and looking back and like, you know, finding all of these old documentary films that that Christians had made, you know, to to um, expose the sin and, you know, demonic nature of J.K. Rowling's books and what she was about. So that was actually the original poll. Um, and then, you know, I, I did just, I did really want to understand what was happening. And, and I don't think if you just start with the tweets you're getting a very shallow version of the story, um, which is why we don't start there. We start way back um, in the early 90s with her her experience um, as a as a victim or a survivor of domestic abuse and sexual assault and go forward from there. Right. So that's interesting. That is just journalistically interesting. That tension, a figure who is a hero or a figure who is demonized by the right becomes a figure demonized by the left. And that figure doesn't really change. But that does parallel a little bit of your experience, celebrated by what we could call the right, this born-again Christian group, and then celebrated by the left as someone who got out of this born-again Christian group. Yeah, I mean, I, I, it's really funny because I mean, when I think about, you know, my own life, I mean, like I, I was very demonized um, 
growing up, which is totally understandable to me now. At the time, though, of course, I see my family and I think that we are, I believe that we are doing the right thing. I mean, like, that's a huge theme of our show, of course. Like, it's even the witch hunters of old, of you know, Salem and, and the ones that we um, talk about in, in Scotland, um, you know, they really thought that they were doing the right thing. They thought that they were stamping out this this evil. Um, and so I obviously also believed that I was doing the right thing. And then in my 20s have this moment where I realized like, oh my God, this these things that I believed were unquestionable um, were actually not just questionable, but you know, I, I came to believe extremely destructive. Um, and that's a really stark realization to come to. And it makes it very difficult going forward to to know, like, how do you ever know? How can you ever know if you're doing the right thing? Like, if if I, if I could be so certain that I was doing the right thing and then and then realize I was wrong, you know, and I, I obviously talk about this at the end of the at the end of the Wish Trials of J.K. Rowling, you know, what leg do I have to stand on? How do I how do I move forward? So that that's that question's at the heart of the show for sure. So she has said, and it's in the show, that she couldn't keep silent any longer. She had to speak out. And what she had to speak out uh, was um, influenced by the fact that she's been a feminist her whole life. And you get into exactly why that is and what that means to her. So I take her at her word. She couldn't not speak out. But what about, does she regret her using the forum of Twitter or social media as a means to speak out. She could have right posted at length just on her site, which she did to explain some of her views, but just never have a Twitter account, never engage in social media, kind of define the conversation on her terms as she wanted to. Do you think that that was or that could have been a route available to her? Yes. I mean, you, you asked the question, does she regret it? Um, I don't think she's ever expressed regret. Um, she did say in one of our conversations, she described, um, you know, one of her June 2020 tweets. So before a few, just a few days before she published that essay you're describing, um, she described that first tweet as flippant. Um, and, you know, again, I, one of the things that I loved about Twitter when I was at Westboro, especially, um, and you know, you hear this from from a lot of people who are who find themselves, uh, you know, having these controversial positions. Um, it's it's very frustrating trying to do you know have those conversations through the media because your words are filtered through the lens of a journalist, and very often things are lost in translation. And it was. So in other words, using a platform like Twitter is a way for you to speak directly to an audience without having that middleman. Um, And again, if you are, especially if you are convinced that you're not going to get a fair hearing, why would you go through the lens of a journalist? Um, So I understand, I think, why she has decided to use Twitter as, you know, in this way. I do think it is like the shallowest and maybe poorest uh, way of of engaging, I I prefer things like her essay and obviously our show, which which really contextualizes a lot of things and and I think and hope and believe um, really gave a fair hearing to a lot of different views, including hers. But that's a risk every single time, and I, I know this myself. Like when I when I did the um, you know there was a Adrian Chen um, wrote this profile for the New Yorker in 2015, and I gave dozens of hours of my life. And it's a terrifying thing to open yourself up to someone 
in that way and to hope against hope that you're going to be fairly represented, that, you're, that you will recognize the person in the article when it finally is published. Um, and if you're J.K. Rowling, you know, she just doesn't, she doesn't have to do that. You know, she, she, she doesn't have to, and she will choose how she engages and when, just like all of us. So I understand why she does. I, I do think our show is a much better representation. And, and I don't mean to say we represent J.K. Rowling better than she does. I think that might be how that sounds. Um, I just mean she herself described in this speech she gave, she described, you know, how she could answer somebody like the, the Christians who were attacking her um, back in the day. She could answer and say, you don't understand what this thing is about human nature. I'm paraphrasing. Or you're an idiot, depending on which side of the bed I woke up on that day. And I think we got the former, you know, and sometimes Twitter, Twitter sometimes gets the latter. But if someone as not just famous and rich and powerful and influential, but someone who has the psychological place that J.K. Rowling has with so many people, if no matter how carefully, how methodically, how sensitively that person in that position were to phrase her actual beliefs, do you really think that we would have escaped the majority of the contratem around her? No. I don't. I mean, and the thing is, you can actually, you know, m maybe it would have been different if she hadn't done the tweets first and if she had published the essay first. But I agree with you. Like, I think there still would have been, you know, a massive amount of blowback. Um, but I do think the more that you choose to communicate in, like, more like the essay than like the tweets, um, in such a way that, like, so again, like, the the people who are really criticizing her, the people that, you know, as I'm reading those um you know, very critical tweets in episode five. You are so disappointing. Turf. Be gone, turf. Watching your book sales plummet will be lovely. Say whatever you're you disgusting. want, but don't be surprised when you're called out as a turf. You don't have to be a transphobe, you know. You're a cartoon. You could also just say nothing. Pretty sure that Hitler and Nazis have the same view as you and Maya when it comes to being a certain sex. Those, those are real. The people who tweet those things are real and they really do hold you know, those positions, I think. Um, but there are a lot of people who just don't understand even what the conflict is or what the debate is. And so, again, I, I do think that the way we, that we choose to communicate matters. Um, you know, Westboro used to say a similar version of this. Like, they wouldn't be like, okay, if we say God hates, God hates fags versus God hates gays, they're still going to hate us for it. And we'd use that as a strategy. I'm not saying Rowling does this at all, but we use that as a strategy to get attention. And I think that that has a markedly like negative effect on the ability to have a conversation around it. There is also, I think, um, you know, in that kind of thinking, there is a hopelessness, right? It doesn't matter how we say it, nobody on the other side can be reached. And from my perspective, like that kind of thinking is is I was going to say dangerous. I'm not trying to like overstate the case. But what I mean is, if we really believe that we can't reach people on the other side, what strategy do we have left besides force and violence? Right? So we so I, I think communication and conversation and dialogue, these are all extremely important. And that how we choose to engage really can affect how the other side can hear us and how they choose to engage. Right. So it's it's these are feedback cycles. And so it, I do think it matters. I mean, it's, it's, it's like the whole thing about my own story. Right. Like the people who were, you know, engaging in like the kind of insults and um 
public shaming, um, kind of reflecting back the hatefulness that they felt from us, um, that just made me even more certain that I was doing the right thing. It was the people who took the time to listen to me and hear where I was coming from um, and to address what I was actually saying, the, the positions that I actually held, um, who eventually were able to help me see outside of this paradigm that I had been raised in. Um, so again, like so they, I guess it would make sense that I would take this position that like the way that we communicate really, really matters. Right. And so what your critics or critics of this series would say and have said is that, so does this mean we just can't say mean things to bigots? Does this mean we can't shun bigots? Does this mean we should never call out rampant bigotry for the chance that we could somehow reach and change the bigot? What's your argument to that? I have never said that that other people shouldn't, you know, respond how they want. Like if they if they want to, um, you know, express their anger, rage, disappointment, um, you know, disgust even for people that they think are doing wrong. I mean, I've never told anybody that they shouldn't do those things. What I have said is that if you want to change people's minds, I don't think that's the most effective way. And tomorrow we will continue our conversation with Megan talking about pushback from the transgender community over the witch trials, specifically the YouTuber and host of ContraPoints, Natalie Wynn. And now the spiel. There have been many unhinged or rude guests in the history of the Sunday shows, but I don't think I've ever seen one as casually dismissive as Representative Tom Emmer, Republican of Minnesota, appearing on CNN's State of the Union, hosted yesterday by Dana Bash. I take a little issue, uh, Dana, with the uh, cuts language. And, and I guess I'd put it this way, Dana, to answer your question. I might We've remind everybody, uh, Donna, that in the last 30 years line budgeting, uh, Donna, that's just four months ago. First of all, her name is Dana Bash, not what Emmer called her. It changed. Plus, there's a Minnesota accent to account for, but that's the least of it. After Bash asked a quite textbook question, respond to your critics, Emmer first began citing Pinocchios, as is the want of Washington insiders, then began questioning not just his critics, in this case administration officials, citing how a discretionary spending cap would hit Minnesotans, but he began questioning and disputing the premise itself. And notice at the end how it starts getting personal. You know, you've got a president who was just told by the Washington Post that his uh, claims on the deficit get 22 Pinocchios. They're just not true. And what you just said is just not true either, because you should scrutinize what the administration is talking about. What we did was you go back to FY22 baseline budgeting, uh, Donna. That's just for... FYI, it's Dana, who you're lecturing about FY22. And lecturing quite rudely, I'd say, here was Bash with a follow-up. So just to underscore before we go, the cuts that I just laid out came from the administration. This is what they claim. You're saying that just is not true. And this is a hypothetical, theoretical question, because what you passed, as we said, is ultimately not going to become the law of the land. But these are very specific uh, cuts that they put out there. 
Again, I know that's your opinion. I would hope this becomes the law. Well, it's not her opinion. Now, I'm not 100% sure if Emmer was saying that it's her opinion that the cuts will hurt Minnesotans. It's not her opinion. It was her quoting administration officials. Maybe Emmer was saying that it's her opinion that the bill won't pass the Senate, but it won't pass the Senate. 50 senators have vowed to vote against it. But tangling with professional interviewers on CNN's State of the Union seems to be a current tactic of Republicans. This was South Carolina Senator Lindsey Graham when he was on the show just last week. Uh, Abortion up to the moment of birth, taxpayer funded, I think is barbaric. I welcome this debate. I think the Republican Party will be in good standing to oppose late-term abortion like most of the civilized world. just for the record, Roe went up to viability, but I just want to button this up. The no, that's, that no, the man- no, quit covering for these guys. No, 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 your media, you keep covering for these guys. They introduced legislation that allowed abortion on demand with taxpayer funded, uh, well, you paying for it, the taxpayer up to the moment yeah. of birth. That was their position in Washington. That's the law they want to pass, and nobody in your business will talk about it. As Dana Bash said, She and her network talk about it frequently and fairly. Graham's characterization of the United States as an outlier that allows terminating pregnancy up until birth is also untrue. So to go backwards, out of 11,000 abortions performed in the United States' dedicated late pregnancy abortion center in Colorado, 25 of them took place in weeks 25 through 27 and 35 in weeks 28 plus. Week 25 abortions are available to save the life of the mother or fetuses are not viable outside the womb throughout Western Europe. It is unclear how many countries would allow an abortion in week 28 plus, but there is nothing on the books that I've read the laws of in countries like Sweden, France, or Spain that would disallow it. And also, let's be clear that 28 weeks, right? We know gestation periods are 40 weeks. 28 weeks isn't up until the moment of birth. Fetal viability is achieved around 28 weeks, but in the case of the fetuses that we're talking about, not for the most part, or perhaps even in every case. Now, I found these statistics in a story in the Washington Post, and I, Mike Pesca, am talking about it here on The Gist. So therefore, it is not true that the media isn't talking about it or covering for anyone. It's also not true that Dana Bash was covering for anyone. It's further not true that her name is Donna Bash. Just wanted to put that out there again. I don't know if part of the bargain of Republicans going on CNN is that they get a free shot at the network's credibility or just feel that they have to take one. But when it's unearned in the specific case of the State of the Union program, or if the shot at CNN is unearned given the questions that are being asked right then in the moment, the Republican official comes off as insulting. But insulting to who? You might say, oh, they don't care. They're just insulting CNN viewers who won't vote for Republicans anyway. But that's not true. The proof that is not true is that Republicans are going on CNN to begin with. There are plenty of discerning viewers of CNN who are open to good arguments. Otherwise, why would any Republican deign to make an appearance on CNN? Of course, that same demo, the open to a good argument group, those are the very viewers you will lose if you engage in terrible arguments. The next prominent Republican for whom this lesson can be absorbed or discarded has just been announced. 
And just into CNN, former President Donald Trump will participate in a CNN presidential town hall next week. That was Jim Shudo today. Citizens and CNN moderators, be so advised. And that's it for today's show. Corey War is the producer of The Gist, and Joel Patterson's the senior producer. Michelle Pesca is in charge of operations for Peachfish Productions. The Gist is presented in collaboration with Libsyn's AdvertiseCast. For advertising inquiries, go to AdvertiseCast.com slash The Gist. Oomperoo, and thanks for listening. Just take the bill we passed last week, Dana. Make it law.